Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Women Who Code Connect Recharge is tomorrow, May 26. To get excited, we're going to look back at some amazing speakers from past conferences. This week's Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we have a talk from Connect Forward 2021, the last major conference we held, where the role of public speaking and career growth is discussed by a panel of Women Who Code Leadership Fellows including Sierra O'Brien, Senior Software Engineer at Twitter, Zareen Reza, AI Research Scientist at Volta Charging, Jokshi Liu, Senior Engineering Manager at GitHub, and Anjali Menon, Solutions Consultant at AsiaPack. For more information and tickets for the upcoming Connect Conference and all future events, visit womenwhocode.com and enjoy the talk. My name is Sapphire Duffy and I'm a leadership fellow at Women Who Code. I'm based in Northern Ireland and it's short that we're coming up to 8pm for me now and it's quite dark here so I've got all the lights on. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited to be joined in this panel with um, Joshi, uh, Sierra and Zareen. And we are really excited to talk about the role of public speaking in career growth and learn how to leverage public speaking opportunities to build an industry of connections and increase your tech profile. So yeah, during this panel, we will discuss the best practices in submitting your CFP form to a Womeny Code event and others. And we'll share tips for an engaging presentation and how to look for opportunities in 2022. So without further ado, let's get right in. So fellows, Um, Can you, each of you, introduce yourself and share a memory of your first speaking experience with everyone here? I can go ahead and introduce myself first. Um, I am Sierra O'Brien. I'm so thankful for being here and so excited that I was invited to sit on this panel. Um, I am the leadership fellow for our mobile track here at Women Who Code. And if you're interested in mobile, I would highly encourage you to come hang out with us. Absolutely. Um, Outside of Women Who Code, I am also a senior mobile engineer at Atomic Robot in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, where I work on native Android applications. Um, I had to think a little little hard about what I want to talk about with respect to my first memory of um, speaking experience. Um, For some of you who don't know me, I uh, switched careers or at least career paths. Um, I was in school to become a a physicist and was in a graduate program. And so when I think back to being in school in that very like academic and research focused environment, I gave talks all the time. And then when I switched into the tech tech side of the field of my life and have been on that path ever since, I pretty much stopped speaking for a really long time because it didn't make as much sense for me, to me, as much sense to me, to be talking about things that there were documentation on and these were things that you could easily find answers on. And that was a huge disconnect for me is what am I supposed to talk about when all these things are already written down, already have talks on and these sorts of things. Um, So 
what ended up being my first um, talk as I was already at this point a senior developer. I did not publicly speak often on my experience until about five years into my career is someone just pushed me and asked and said, we never get mobile submissions for this particular conference. It was a conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and so that, that, that encouragement and motivation from someone very specifically who like uh, respected me and thought I had valuable opinions to give really pushed me into my first technical speaking experience. And since then I, I submit a lot, <laughs> talk a lot. Anyone, anyone who will host me, I am happy to talk more about mobile. Thank you, Sarah. I love that. Um, so, Anjali, thanks for joining us. And we're wanting to find out more about each of the fellows. So find out about if you can introduce yourself and share a memory of your first speaking experience. So, so far, Sierra has gone. Would you like to go next, Anjali? Yeah, sure, Sophia. And uh, thank you. Thank you all. So I'm Anjali and I'm based out of Singapore, currently working as a solutions consultant in Asia Pack, and I'm also the leadership fellow for the Code blockchain track. Okay, so about my first speaking experience, it was at a Code Connect conference in 2017. It was an in-person event and I was really very nervous on the day and even the day prior to that. I was wondering, there were too many things going on in my head. One of the things was, will I be able to complete my talk in time? Will I be able to uh, cover all the topics that I'm planning to complete? And then I, when, when I went to the stage, I was so nervous. And um, I just fumbled on the very first sentence. But I feel that the audience was very supportive and I could hear like people being very encouraging and they said, OK, it's OK, you know, just go ahead. And that somehow gave me a lot of confidence and I was very happy and I was able to lead uh, and complete the session on time and covering all the topics that I wanted to. So I feel uh, that it's very important to have your first speaking session with a community that actually encourages you and that will make you even more stronger and more confident. So yeah. Um, I can go next. So uh, hi, I'm Zarin. Uh, I am the leadership fellow uh, of Women Who Code Data Science Track. I have worked as a data scientist in Thales Canada for a little more than two years. And recently, just this week, actually, I joined as an algorithm engineer in Volta. So uh, I'm very happy to be with all the fellows here. And uh, Women Who Code has been a very uh, you know, it, it played an important role in my career, probably uh, in the follow up que following questions, we you will know more about it. But my first uh, actual public talk experience was when I uh, participated for a competition called three minute thesis competition when I was doing my master's. So the competition was like, you have to present your entire thesis work in three minutes with one static slide to a wide range of audiences without any technical background necessarily. So I remember like, although the speech was just for three minutes, but I prepared for more than a week to uh, for that talk. And I practiced a lot. I was extremely scared, extremely intimidated because there were even journalists, people from all the different areas I haven't even uh, thought of. Uh, but uh, before uh, getting onto the stage, until I get into the stage, I was very, very scared. But once I got into the stage, 
I forgot about everything. I just started speaking. And that's that I could do that because I practiced a lot. It, like I practice everything by my heart. So I think that worked really uh, great. So practice, practice a lot. Uh, so that's about me. Uh, Jachi, do you like to go next? Yeah, hi everyone. Um, my name is Jachi. I am the leadership fellow for Women Who Code Cloud. Um, I am uh, also a senior uh, engineering manager at GitHub, and that's what I do as part of my day job. In terms of my first speaking experience, um, I don't know if this is my first speaking experience, but certainly one of the most memorable ones is the first time I spoke at PyCon. Uh, I think something really exciting about speaking at Python is that it's a very supportive community as well. And it's also a really large conference. You are speaking at a stage in front of a very large room with, um, there's actually quite a lot of empty seats due to how large the space is, but still a big audience. And that can be quite shocking. Um, I think what actually I wanna touch upon is back when there were in-person conferences it's not just the like speaking on stage it's a whole like experience of getting yourself to a conference meeting other speakers meeting other you know participants and participating in the hallway chat as a speaker because people will come look for you at a conference they know who you are they've seen you in the agenda um that's been pretty memorable and a big fun part of my own community is sort of built around the people I've met traveling and speaking. Awesome. Thank you all for sharing um, a bit about you and then also your experience as well. So I think it's really interesting. Um, by the way, Zarin, congratulations on your new job. Applaud her. Well done. Um, so yeah, much. I think it's really no problem. Um, congratulations. So I think it's really good that, you know, a few people up a really good point about you know people want you to do well and um, they want you they are encouraging you and I had a similar experience to Anjali actually so when I first went on stage I was petrified but the community really encouraged you and want you to do well so that's so true um so this then brings us to the next one so how should you choose what to speak on um so are there certain topics that are better for career development or certain topics appropriate for certain levels? Yeah, I can uh, go first. I think it's really important to speak on things that you identify as part of your personal brand and also things that are part of your um, areas of interest. Um, I know Sierra mentioned that for a while she didn't speak uh, so when I was an individual contributor, I had technical topics that I was developing expertise in, and I picked those topics to, to speak about. When I became an engineering manager, I actually took a, a big break from speaking because I didn't know what to speak about anymore and how I wanted to present myself publicly. Um, nowadays, I speak more about, you know, building a remote team and how do I do um, strategic planning with my team. Uh, but I am still very interested in thinking about technical topics that I personally am going to go in depth on and be, you know, have build up that expertise on and also be a part of my brand. So 
I would say that it really depends on where you want your career to go, how you want to represent yourself, uh, and, and picking topics that resonates with you. Um, I think that it can be really, really difficult to choose a topic. I know that is something that I struggle with a lot. Um, and the question that I probably get asked the most often when I bring up asking for speakers and requesting speakers for different events is, I don't know what to talk about. And so um, from my perspective, there's always a couple of different hints that I give people um, for how to pick that. Um, number one is like really thinking about your audience. So when applying to something like Women Who Code, I know that there's gonna be a huge, huge array of different technical backgrounds. And so I try to think of something that can be interesting for people outside of mobile as well. Whereas if I apply to an Android specific conference, it's those kind of talks are going to be really technical deep dives in a specific Android topic because I don't have to necessarily give all that background and build up to get into the meat and content of that particular talk. Um, so really considering your audience. And then if you're still struggling, the hints that I always give everyone is depending on what kind of conference you're talking to, if you're going one in your kind of technical expertise, find someone else in your technical expertise and you can talk to them about what you do every day. I find that 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 kind of getting that distance from your own day job and talking to someone who doesn't do your day job every day can be super helpful to picking out things that would be interesting to other people. I know that I work on the same thing day in and day out. And so it's really hard for me to see that as like interesting and cool, but there's so many people who don't do what I do every day. And so those are valid topics for a different talk. And similarly, if you're like doing a talk for a more general audience or a less specific, technical stack, like a Women Who Code conference, talking to someone outside your expertise about things that you do every day um, to kind of get that outside perspective of someone from outside your technical expertise of things that they think are interesting. And then I also always recommend doing thinking about passion projects. It doesn't have to be something that you do every day. Um, I just came out of my talk that the opening of that talk is, I don't do this every day. This is not my expertise. It's just something that I think is really cool and I want to share with you that you can get started at that entry level and talk about it on a stage and present that material without being an expert as well. Awesome, I think Sarah and Jachi have already covered some really great points. Uh, I would probably just add a few things. Uh, so, uh, I mean, what are certain topics that can be you know, better for your career development? So in that case, I would say like pick topics which shows your depth in that area. So instead of going through like superficially on a lot of topics, if you pick one topic, which where your expertise lies in, and you can uh, show your depth of knowledge and experience there, then two things will happen. First, the audience will be more engaged. The audience, it will be useful for the audience to learn more about it because you know a lot, so you know how to present them in a relatable way, in a, in a palatable way. Uh, and the second thing is when you are, you want to share the public talk with someone else or in, inside your network, people will know that, hey, this person is really an expert in this area. So if I want to reach out to uh, some person regarding this area, I will remember that person. Let me just bookmark her or so something like that. So I think uh, that there are some uh, areas where uh, you, I mean, while choosing a topic, you can think about what are some areas where you can go a little bit deeper uh, in terms of when you're giving the talk. And another thing is like, because 
I'm sure everyone can relate. Like uh, people these days, uh, many people reach out to us or reach out to uh, other people or, or to look up who they look up to, right? So they come and ask about different, uh, like, hey, can you uh, give me some good resources to get into data science as example, like how I can get an internship, how I can start learning about machine learning. So these kind of things. So you can uh, also organize this kind of mentorship or career focused events as well, which in, in which events you will just share how you started, how you started, uh, with this career, what you were thinking, how, what are the things that worked for you? What are the things that didn't work for you? So these also another career, uh, another uh, stream, which uh, can be very useful to the community. That is amazing. I think uh, all three of you have covered most of the major points and I agree with all the things and definitely having a deep expertise that also gives you a confidence to go and present a topic. So I think that is amazing. And the other three panelists did, did a great job on covering all the topics. So. Yeah, I totally agree there, Anjali. Thank you, Sierra, Zorin and Jachi. Like it covered pretty um great great tips for everyone out there especially um sierra i like the way you said thinking about your audience and people outside your audience as well just um getting someone some like ask someone that you don't know that doesn't do a similar job to you as such and what they would be interested in i think that's a good um tip as well so going on to the next question i have for you all then so based on your experience what is the number one mistake when submitting a cfp um, I can go first. So I think uh, the very first, it, it may sound very obvious, but I have seen like uh, these things happen. So first of all, it's very important to know what is the theme of that event or what is the theme of the community in general where you are trying to give that talk. So uh, your talk can be uh, an excellent topic. You know a lot. You want to like produce a nice talk, but uh, probably it doesn't align with the theme necessarily and it can, it may get rejected. So it's very important to first learn about if you're uh, applying for, let's say in a conference, just go to their webpage and see what the conference, uh, uh, what's, what the theme of the conference is, what are the topics and what their target audience are. So based on that, if you can uh, come up with the talk title. I mean, you can still talk about the same topic, but just you need to uh, tweak it a little bit, reformulate it a little bit so that it aligns with the team, uh, with the theme and the target audience. That's one important thing. I totally agree with you, Zareen. Just to add one more point on top of that, I think the description also matters. So many a times like uh, I have seen and I have heard from people that in the description box, uh, you're not giving full description of what your talk is going to be. So uh, um, just to give an example, if you're going to present on blockchain basics and uh, in the description box, you're just going to say that, okay, I'm going to present on the blockchain basics. That's it. And if we get a similar submission that says beginner blockchain session, and that is more descriptive in the description box, they are mentioning what all topics are they going to cover in the blockchain technology. Then as a reviewer, you would obviously uh, select the one which is more descriptive. So uh, it's always very important to have the correct amount of description and you're giving all the details in. So I would suggest that for all the, all the 
people who are interested to speak, make sure that you're giving the correct um, amount of description and make sure that it's not too long or it's not too short. All the information that you want to provide, you're able to like give in there in with um, probably like 100 to 200 words. So that that is one of the mistakes which I feel that many a times um, we as speakers or could actually make. Yeah, I love that. I think it makes quite a lot of sense because you also have to think about once you're accepted, then the audience is reading this description to decide whether or not they want to attend the talk. And ultimately, that's sort of, you know, who is going to benefit from the experience. Um, I think one mistake I've sort of seen is a lot of bigger conferences uh, will actually have a um, like a tips or tr and tricks or like a guiding principles for submitting CFP. And usually for them, if because they do get a lot of submissions, uh, you know, you we want to follow their like style guide or their guiding principles and and follow um, kind of what they're looking for. Uh, I think many people have said this already, but everyone wants you to succeed. Everyone's trying to give you as much information as possible to help you be successful in this. Um, so following through with, with some of that, it does become really important in getting your um, CFP to, to go through. Um, all really good call outs. And then I just kind of went to wrap up with a reminder that um, not getting selected does not necessarily mean that you made a mistake, and it might just mean that it was a competitive conference. There's a lot of things, and you should see that as a success because now you have a CFP or you have your submission, and so you can keep submitting that other places, and there are so many places that you can do it, including the Women Who Code tracks, but lots of local meetups and local user groups as well, and so that was not like hard work lost but hard work that you can use somewhere else as well. Yeah, I love that, Sierra. And like a lot of conferences and submissions for talks are very competitive. So don't be disheartened. You can always submit to other places as well and reuse that for um, any future um, conferences. So um, Jachi, I really like we said about also about looking at the guidelines for the CFP. Um, so yeah, at Women Co, we help um, our community with submitting um, CFP to our conferences and we host a few panel events before um, any of our conferences as well. And there's a whole community here to help you with your submission too, if you need help with that. So, um, so as we know, the conference selection can be competitive. So um, how do you, how can you make the CFP stand out? What's your advice? Um, Anjali, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure, Sapphire. So um, I think that's a very interesting question and that's what uh, would be very beneficial for the attendees as well. So according to me, there are a few things which really matter. So the first one I would say is having a catchy title. I just read that somebody in the comment section also asked if we can have a humorous topic. I think that definitely... Uh, that would definitely make you stand out of the other applications, right? People will be more interested to know more about it. So I think having a catchy title is one of the points. The second point, I think, is the content itself. If you have something very unique or 
you know, like I said, uh, the description also matters. So if you have something unique or you've worked on something which is uh, not shown in other conferences and it's a new topic, then also you have a higher chance to get accepted. Obviously, it depends on which conference you're submitting to. So yeah, that's other thing. And I think third and the most important thing in my point of view is that having probably I would give a bonus point to somebody who provides in a short sentence that how would their session um, inspire the attendees or how would it benefit the attendees. So I think if you are putting in that point as part of your description, then it's really good because when we are giving a talk, it's for the attendees, right? And if you mention what is the takeaway for the attendees, that would be like really great. So it's also like, good to add all of these points so yeah yeah well said Anjali that was actually going to be my biggest thing especially for for women who code events right um knowing like what attendees can walk away from is is really valuable um and especially because attendees are also making a commitment in their time to to attend your talk um I would say that you know kind of echoing what Sierra has said, I don't think you should worry too much if your CFP doesn't get accepted and don't give up on that, keep submitting it. I lost count of the number of times I have been rejected from conferences, um, but there's just so many factors um, behind the scenes. You know, there could be other people who submit a similar talk or, you know, there could be so many things behind the scenes that you can't control. So keep submitting and, um, you know, if anyone needs any help reviewing CFPs, I'm more than happy to to do that. Um, the only other point I would add, um, I think that we covered it so well here, is um, anything that you can do to kind of call out your own unique perspective on the topic as well. Um, I know that <laughs> these are all big asks. Make sure you tell us why it's going to inspire people and also what your unique perspective is. But um, I think that just saying even why you care about it personally can go a long way as well as this is an important topic to me for X, Y, or Z, or this has been beneficial in my career for X, Y, and Z, or this is something I really care about for whatever reason. Uh, all the great points have been covered. I feel like I just wanted to add a few things to uh, what Sierra just uh, said. So definitely like um, you don't, I, I, I understand like sometimes it's difficult to always come up with something new or something very unique as a talk topic so uh, probably you don't have expertise in that yet but still you want to give some talk that's totally fine you can pick like a common topic but it depends on how you present it you can always add a new dimension to it based on your experience probably you have some unique experience or a unique story to tell uh, in the same topic so everything is valuable and one more thing i would like to add is like from the organizer's point of view probably it will give you an edge if you can also add like why you would be the right person to give this talk so as example you can just say hey these things i have been working on this area for x, x many years in different companies or i have this or i have made this cool project or you know i have papers on that i mean anything you have been exposed with related to this topic. If you just mention those things in your proposal, then probably it will also, you know, uh, it will, it may add as a standout point for your application. 
Well, thank you all for all those great tips. And yeah, I think that you've all shared like amazing um, tips for all of our audience here there as well about, um, you know, using like that. So I think that's fantastic. And I guess that then brings us to the last question um, we have before we have an exciting um, uh, thing for our audience afterwards. So using your personal experience, how can you leverage your speaking experience into new opportunities? Sarah, if you want to kick off first. Yeah, I'm actually just going to point to things that we've already said today. We kind of covered both of my main ones already. Mm -hmm. um, number one, it gives other folks like a really good insight into the things that you're interested in working on or the things that you're already really good at working on. Um, I personally like really enjoy speaking about building accessible Android applications. And so that has led to conversations with folks that are trying to make their app more accessible or looking to hire those accessibility experts. Um, and so giving those talks has pointed them in my direction to at least start that conversation in the past. And then the other point I wanted to bring out is that being a speaker at a conference makes networking a whole heck of a lot easier at that conference. Joshi brought that up a little bit earlier in her opening is that it gives you something to talk about. I am personally a nervous person. And so small talk and networking at events makes me very nervous. And so having a talk, being on the speaker list, those sorts of things gives people something to talk to you about or something for you to kind of open with when you're at those kind of events. And we all know that networking is a huge aspect to new opportunities and having those kinds of things um, open to you as well. Absolutely, I totally agree with Sarah. Uh, also, like whenever you give some talk, you receive a recording of it, please don't shy to share it all across your platform. Share it on LinkedIn, especially. Share it with your family, friends, your colleagues. You don't know who may reach out to you regarding that talk because they know like you know about this topic. And also uh, just uh, I want to share a personal experience like how public speaking has helped me in my uh, current job. I mean, like my past job. Uh, but uh, so uh, I gave a talk in Connect Reimagine uh, this year, June uh, on privacy preserving AI. And when I got the recording, I just went ahead. I hesitated a bit, uh, but then I went ahead and shared it with my colleagues in my current work. I shared it with my manager and my immediate uh, analytic team. What happened is that a few months later, when our company was uh, pivoting towards some privacy preserving uh, you know, dimension or privacy preserving uh, use cases, my manager called me and said, hey, Zarin, I know you know, know about this a lot. I, I saw your talk. So would you be interested to lead this project? So it really happened to me. So you can see like how like sharing your things with others uh, can really make a difference in the long run. Yeah, I think I would say that um, my speaking experience has never directly translated to a promotion or a new job. So don't ever be frustrated that, you know, you spoke at a, a bunch of conferences, but you're not still not getting responses from your resume. It takes so much time to build up that personal brand. It takes time to build up that network. Um, plus one to everything Sierra and Zareen has said, uh, it does having, you know, personal brand behind you and having artifacts like videos behind you really does help your uh, portfolio and really does help your career. 
I would share that in my personal experience, what's interesting about being a public speaker or even writing is that in a in a situation where someone's trying to mansplain something to me that I have expertise in, um, I can always point them to, hey, look, I have this video where I did give a talk about Kubernetes, so it's okay. You don't have to explain this to me. And it is always funny to see people react in, in those situations. I think that is amazing. Wow, some great points. So, okay, uh, probably based on my career experience, I think speaking has really helped me personally because uh, previously when I started off, I was into development and I only interacted with my own colleagues. So did not really interact with the customers or the end users. I really wanted to go and switch to that um, that position as well. So currently my role as a solutions consultant, day-to-day uh, -day basis, I interact with the customers, I listen to their pain points and help to transform that into a technical solution. So um, that's the kind of role that I was uh, thinking of when I was a developer and speaking really helped me to become more confident and uh, also to gain more knowledge. So when you're talking more on technical aspects, you will get uh, more knowledge. And when you're presenting, you're actually teaching to people. So that also helps you to uh, build yourself and um, uh, able to uh, make a good connection with the um, attendees as well. And like uh, others mentioned, yeah, definitely, like Zareen mentioned, we should definitely share our videos or recordings in LinkedIn so you don't know who would reach out to you for the next opportunity. So all great points here, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I I would be pretty bad for not sharing any talks that I did on LinkedIn or anything like that. So I'd be like, oh, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> so I've grown a lot from that there. And sometimes I get embarrassed looking at previous videos, but don't ever be like, um, I don't know I think it's just listening to the sound of your own voice you're like oh no I don't want to hear that but after a while it's okay so definitely share your talks with everyone let the audience know what you've been sharing what experiences you've been sharing with people that can lead to so many opportunities as well so I love it Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. A little bit about me. So as I said, I'm Jamika. I'm an engineering manager at Thought Machine. So I've been working for, I guess, a total of 15 years now, but the last four years have been uh, as, an, as a manager. So I'm not coding day to day, but I do like to keep technical and keep myself up to date. Um, and I volunteer a lot around uh, women's technical groups, um, Women Who Code London being one of them. I also mentor in both in this group and in Women's Society of Engineering. Um, I'm really passionate about helping women uh, advance in tech. Um, and yeah, I've worked in different uh, cities. I was born in Manila originally, um, but now I'm here in London. I've been here for about eight years now, so that feels like a long while. Um, so yeah, let's talk about object-oriented programming. I mean, what is it really? Um, it's a paradigm. And what that really means, it's, it's a pattern, a model, a way of thinking about things. So. We, I think we do this uh, on the day-to-day. -day. We have a model of things in our heads. We know what a 
tree looks like. It's got a trunk, it's got a leaf, it's got branches. It helps us represent ideas or concepts as code consistently. And the term consistently, uh, in my mind, is quite a key thing about creating models because it helps us come to a common understanding of how we represent data and behavior uh, in our software applications. Um, it's based on the idea of grouping related data and functions onto a single thing. So the groupings is something we could call uh, objects. Um, we can also define this as compared to other paradigms. The, the one that most people come to when they first start coding is probably procedural programming, where you linearly do one step on the next and data is received in a function and then you proceed linearly to the next step. So scripts is quite common. A script will run, do something with an input and then produce an output. Pretty straightforward. So that's what people call procedural programming. Um, and then you can compare that to also to functional programming. So functions, they do not store data. Um, you also hear the word state quite a lot. So functional prog programming doesn't store state. What it does, it, it transforms them. And we can explore a little bit a little bit later what this really means in practice. So it's more about um, the functions of computation. Quite a lot of them are uh, deals with computation heavy uh, problems. Um, and they, yeah, they don't store state. So they don't store data or attributes. And this is in opposition to object oriented, where you care a lot about the data, what's the behavior, and you also keep on keep in state um, uh, its attributes. So the data you need in order to make decisions. So that's object oriented uh, paradigm uh, in a nutshell. But what does this really mean? So how do you how do you do this? So the first thing really is to think about it conceptually. So in a, in, in a given domain, so say you're a developer, you're given some sort of requirements, you, at least this is how I do things. So I identify actors. So what does that mean? It's a, it's a thing that does something or that has a behavior. And then I look at what they do. So I've got some examples here. So for example, I work in, in FinTech. Uh, so you'll find my examples are like banky uh, concepts. But here you've got, you know, a card, which is an actor, it makes payment. So that's an action. Or a window can be minimized um, for the web developers out there. Um, or a button can be clicked. Um, an email is archived. So you can imagine, you can start imagining how you do this kind of modeling, like in all the things you interact with in the world and you can pretty much translate that into some sort of concept and this act of thinking about the domain and representing them as a concept is widely referred to as modeling um, lots of people might not call it this you know people might call it like requirements interpretation but at the end of the day it's a skill that is quite important you do this a lot is quite intuitive because we like to think in terms of 
the things that interact with the world. Um, so this is modeling. So it's learning to identify the actors, the data you need, and the type of interactions taking place. So the examples I mentioned earlier, right? So a card creates a payment to an account. For example, you are thinking about who or what interacts with another uh, thing. So here, you know, a card would create, when you say a card creates a payment, it, it refers to the objects um, that are, that have a behavior. So you can think of it as actors are the objects. So in the example, you've got a card, you've got a payment, you've got an account. You've got traits, which could be what would be the attributes of the object. And these are important because they might be things that you need in order to make a decision or enforce a behavior, which then that brings us to the functions. So here, um, the last example is actually a kind of uh, a behavior where an account can reject or accept a payment. So if you were to write a function, so if you were to define a behavior, which is practically means you're going to write a function, that means that you have to think about what are the what's the pieces of data, what is it about that account that lets you make that decision. So that's the attribute of your object. So then, you know, this brings us to, you know, what, what does it really mean in practice, right? So object-oriented programming is really about translating these models into code. Um, and this uh, really is a kind of a mapping of this, you know, the, these, three, these three things that we've identified when we were doing the modeling exercise is we identified actors, traits, and behavior. That means you've got an object, attributes of that object, and how it behaves. So what does that really mean in code when you start coding? And so objects in code in most programming languages, well, at least in everything I know, it's represented by classes. And a class, so the examples I have here is in Python, by the way, um, in case. That's why I was running a little poll earlier. Um, Okay, most people are most people are preferring Python. So great. Um, so yeah, so we've got classes, which is a data type. And so if you haven't if you're if you haven't coded in Python, in Python they've got data types, int, string, um, and class is just another data type. It's a it's a data type that acts as a template. So it's a it's a thing that tells the the interpreter how to instantiate or create this object. So in Python it's very simple. You use the keyword reserved word class and then what you want to call it. Um, and then that's it. That's that's an object. So in my example, uh, again if we were to um, look at this one, it says, you know, we want to model an account. You want to think about an account, that's my object. Uh, I'm just going to call it account, right? So it's a simple bank account model. Um, so what could be the attributes of this account, right? So the example here says, you know, 
an account might want to reject or accept a payment. And so if I want to roughly think about that, um, you know, maybe you want to reject a payment when you uh, reach an overdraft or something like this. So there's some, some conditions with which an account can reject payment. Maybe it's not an open account, so it hasn't been opened yet, uh, so on and so forth. So these kinds of requirements, you would um, look into them so you can determine or discern what are the attributes of your object. So in this case, you know, maybe an account name is a is an attribute because um, if you think about it, if you accept or reject payment, maybe that's the name that's not the correct name of the account that someone is transferring money to. These kinds of things. So these, it's the data that you need to make a decision. So these are things that you consider as attributes. Variables in an object hold its state. So. If I wanted to declare that my class has a attribute of state, as in open, close, pending, then that would be a variable I would declare uh, underneath the account class. In the case of Python, you don't really need to explicitly declare it. If you go account dot something, that's you accessing the attribute of that uh, class. And in Python, when you want to create an account or initialize an object, you just say account and that creates an account object. What that really does underneath the hood is it is it that it runs things like a constructor, which we'll get to in a moment. So looping back a little bit into the modeling exercise, when you think about how to model your objects, there are lots of methods about what they call object-oriented analysis. So if you do a little bit of a Google search, there's millions of ways that you can try and practice how to model things. These questions, they fall under the, the a specific method called the Cordo-Jurdon Cordo method. Um, and it's just a series of questions that help you think about your model. So for example, would the system need to remember information about this class of objects? So in the case of an account, things like the state is probably something you would need to keep uh, on hand every time you need to do a behavior, execute some behavior, whether that's accepting a payment or closing the account, maybe you need to reference the state of the account. That's an example. Another, um, uh, another good question to ask is, do the objects in this class have identifiable operations that change the values of these attributes. So that's why in some classes you, you will find, especially in Java, it's quite common, they call their um, uh, function names like something manager. Because if you need a class that manages state, then maybe this is uh, something that you need to keep in mind. And that could be an attribute of that class or that could be something that you need to write a, a getter and setter for, which we'll also get into in a moment. Then again, multiple attributes. If you end up creating a class that only has one attribute, maybe it's better uh, represented as an attribute of another class. Maybe it's a bigger, maybe you have a bigger 
class that already exists and you're initializing a class just to hold that one attribute. Also useful to think about when you're trying to model. Um, common attributes, you have to think about whether all the instances, all the accounts in your bank system, for example, will have attributes that are shared within all those instances. For example, an account name, every, every single account must absolutely have an account name, for example. So that's a kind of attribute that you know exists across all the objects in your system. And common operations. So are there uh, classes in your system that have oper that operations that are shared with all the instances of its objects? So all the, all the accounts in my bank need to be able to know how to close themselves, for example. So those behaviors, something that re reiterates the need for having a class or representing that object as part of a class. So then comes the question, when do I even use object-oriented programming languages? So if you recall, you've got procedural programming and functional programming. So it's one of the many available paradigms. If you look at most programming languages, they have a mix of all of these features. So Java has a functional uh, support. You can, you know, MapReduce is a, example, a good example of that. Um, when you reduce values in single function call, that's probably functional. And there, there's play, it's all about trade-offs, pros and cons. I personally take the stance of program, uh, pragmatic uh, approach, which is I look at the problem that I'm trying to solve and see what, what might be better, what paradigm might be better to apply. And sometimes it's a mix of these different things. So to help to help me think a little bit about OOP, I always think about the pros and cons, because that's in general is what software development is. You make some trade-offs. There is no perfect solution to everything. So you've got some pros pros. So it's quite intuitive, right? We we I think we do this quite a lot when you talk to people, make metaphors um to describe something that's a form of modeling so it's it can feel very intuitive once you get a hang of it once you do it quite a lot uh in some cases it becomes like a part like a default way of solving problems data encapsulation um as i said you can control and make the behavior predictable so in the examples i presented you can take a look at um the way the, the at which attributes are public or private, um, what what attributes are set when certain functions are called, and this helps you uh, predict, make it deterministic. It's a lot of people tend to use that term, um, which means the result should always be the same. Uh, if you do your model well, it should be easy to maintain. So if you have a class that has a, a parent class that has an attribute and you change it, change it in one place, all the inheriting classes will uh, get that um, change also. You can reuse things, so the usefulness of inheritance, you know, when you, if you keep it simple, you can make, uh, make your productivity better because you don't have to rewrite a bunch of code. And this is really where that comes in. Of course, there are cons. 
right? So like anything, if it's if you're not used to doing this, it can uh, take a bit of practice to get good at modeling. Um, in legacy code bases, it can be complicated to maintain, especially if over time, lots of people have written classes that inherit from parent classes and then that person has already left. <laughs> so then you end up in the, if you Google the diamond inheritance problem, for example, that's that's one common um, common problem I see in organic legacy code bases where people, oh, let's inherit from this class, I'm just gonna write that. And then someone wrote another class that inherited from that other class. And so that can that can get quite hairy. Um, complexity. So lots of people who have strong opinions against OOP would tell you that uh, state or mutable state is the the their main problem with OOP, and that's that's with that's not without reason. It can be quite um, difficult to debug once you get to things like concurrency. If there are like concurrent processes that access the same class and they both need to mutate that state, um, that can make the system behave in ways that you can't really predict. So these are just things to keep in mind when you are uh, designing your system. But for the most part, uh, you know, unless you were writing some massive, I don't know, it, I think people who work in databases, for example, they they would have to think about this a lot. But if you were working in a web application or an app, I think for the most part, OOP works quite well. So I like to take that stance. But there are numerous debates about, you know, OOP versus functional. But I think you have to have worked with a lot of object orientation to to be really against it, um, I think. Because for the most part, it's quite useful. It's a good tool to make sure that everyone understands what your objects are and what how the things are represented in code. So I don't think it's like the worst thing in the world. On this week's segment of Women Who Code Conversations, we have Katherine Ross, Partner and Managing Director at Accenture. She discusses her experiences at Accenture over the past 28 years, her advice for finding mentorship, and how to have a safe work environment where you'll feel comfortable staying and growing for a long time. Enjoy! My name is Grecia Castaldi. I am part of the Women Code team. I am the Program Manager of Digital Communities. And today we have a very special guest, Catherine Ross from Accenture. She is the Global Open Innovation Lead and Black Founders Development Program Lead. I will read her bio, first of all. So Catherine Ross has enjoyed a 28-year career with Accenture, focusing on emerging disruptive technologies and helping industry-leading clients prepare for, combat, and understand how these new functions and capabilities will impact their businesses. Catherine is passionate about working with cutting-edge technologies and has translated that interest into delivering innovative solutions in a variety of industries, including financial, retail, and public services. She is a global lead for open innovation, where she works to connect Accenture's ecosystem partners 
to clients uh, to drive growth and to help clients innovate and rotate to the new. She is also the lead for the Black Founders Development Program, which is helping to level the playing field for Black technology startup founders and entrepreneurs through investment, mentorship, community, and support. Catherine is a strong leader focused on closing the gap between clients and entrepreneurial startups held by minority or women founders and CEOs, as well as ventures in the sustainability or social impact space. Welcome back, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's start our conversation. And first of all, I will ask you, can you tell us about your professional journey? I, I'm happy to. Um, we could spend an hour. It's been 28 years. There are a lot of um, interesting points. But um, I had a mentor myself a few years ago. He's since retired from Accenture. Uh, but he gave a presentation once that really resonated with me and one that um, I think really represents my career journey. And he called it the three Ps. And that when you start your journey, the first thing that you're looking for is promotion. And promotion comes with knowledge and experience. And so for me, it was all about technology. My family loved technology. My brother was an engineer. My father was an engineer. So I was in it from a very young age. And I sort of cut my teeth with an Accenture on early workflow, customer relationship management type of um, capabilities and got to the point where I was known within the firm for having those capabilities, which, of course, promoted um, you know, my promotion to um, higher levels within the organization. The second thing that you seek as you mature in your career is power. And power isn't necessarily over other people, but it's power to make decisions, power to solve problems. Uh, and so moving from you know, having the technology capability with the CRM, with workflows and things like that, I moved into design and moved into software development and the, the ability to now actually create, to build um, new net new things. Uh, and that led to what I would say is the third um, P, which is purpose, right? Once you have achieved promotion, once you have, you know, got that power where you're able to make decisions, help decide, create teams and things like that. The next thing is, well, how do you use that? And that's purpose. And that's now, you know, what drives me in my current role as the Open Innovation Lead in the Black Founders League. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I am so impressed by your profile and everything that you have done. Can you tell us more about what you currently do and uh, more about you just in general? Um, you know, the theme, the thread throughout my entire career has been technology, right? And how do we make the world a better place effectively? How do we um, make, you know, automate to make things easier? And today, one of the things that um, is at the heart of my job as an open innovation lead is really starting to look at the marketplace for technology software to understand what's the best capabilities out there that solve some of the world's biggest challenges. So our clients come to us in every industry that you can think of, whether it's life sciences, whether it's supply chain, and they're asking the question around how do you support, solve, fix, you know, X or, or Y business challenge. And our goal is not to say that it's this company, it's how do we put the things together? How do we put traditional technology, some of the big folks, the AWSs, the um, the SAPs together with the startups, together with some, you know, muscle, right, in terms of building interconnections between those capabilities that essentially drives new innovation and either leapfrogs that client to a new high or a new area that they hadn't um, had a chance to participate in before or 
solves a problem that they've had, um, you know, for years or for a moment that enables them to actually achieve their business goals. And so it's it's a constant logic problem. The second thing that drives me is the Black Founders Development Program. Within the software, the technology software community, you know, VC dollars, it's been shown, right? Less than 1% of the VC dollars goes to Black founders. And that's my goal is how do I accelerate that? How do I provide them with a platform in which they have the opportunity to be in front of more clients, more VCs, more technology partners that they could potentially partner with that helps them drive their business. And if we do that and they drive their business and their business grows, they offer more jobs into the community in which they serve. And I think that's fundamentally what we're trying to do from an economic empowerment um, standpoint. So I've now figured out how to meld the two sides of my job into one daily effort. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go first with Accenture. I have known Accenture from many years ago, and I know it is a great place to work. So tell me, how is it to work at Accenture? Can you tell us about the culture of this company? Um, Accenture is 700,000 plus people. When I joined, it was 29,000 people, right? So, I mean, it's a significant shift. It is a small country at this point, right? And as many small countries, every organization has what I would say is its own culture, right? Whether they are internal facing or external facing. I think the thread at the core of Accenture is our core values, which has always been about respect for the individual. It's always been about serving our clients and bringing one global Accenture um, together. Even now, right, what allowed me to start the Black Founders Program was a commitment from our leadership to driving change in the marketplace, right? That is the culture of Accenture, which is, you know, as opportunities arise, um, one of my team, um, it was from Afghanistan, and, you know, earlier this year, I should say last year, when um, we, they had issues in terms of the refugees, she reached out to our leadership once again and said, hey, we should be doing something, and guess what? They did. So that is the culture of Accenture is how do we as individuals continue to drive our daily job, but also you know, be part of the communities once again that we, are, we serve um, or are part of to drive change within those communities. It's a, it's a great place to work. It's a great place to find like-minded people who you can then partner with to drive that impact. Thank you for sharing. And I mean, you have been there for more than 20 years, right? Yeah. 28. <laughs> 28. I was wow. going to be here for two and it's been 28. <laughs> that is great. So uh, can you tell us what can women do to find a safe workplace like you did, uh, where they can stay for many years, grow professionally and experience many different roles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, safety is defined in a, in a variety of different ways, and it's probably very individual to that person. Safety could be it's not abusive, right? That's not tolerated within Accenture. And it's, you know, you got to report that immediately. But it could also be, you know, I, you want to find a place where your teammates are competitive, but it's not negative, right? Where, you know, you're, you're having fun. You know, I, I tell my team all the time, we spend a significant part of our day, eight to 10 hours, potentially, depending on time zones and everything else, working with each other. If we're not having fun, then that's a problem. So in terms of finding a safe workplace, I always tell people, as you are interviewing for a role, interview the interviewer. Do you want to work with them, right? Can you meet the people that you're going to work with? 
there is a human connection. There is a vibe that you can feel that says, mm, okay, that might be interesting, right? That, that, that person and I, we jive, or you could be complete opposites, but you still connect and you can still drive that forward. Is that difficult to do without, you know, a, a continuous um, interaction? Yes, but you know, in the interview, what are the questions you want to ask? For myself personally, I have been around 28 years. I have not had the same role. I've always tell people I've had six well, now seven very different careers within Accenture in terms of places that I've shifted. Um, and I learned in the last couple of years, it took me a bit to say, what is it that I like? Definitely know it's technology. Um, I definitely know that I want to be in a family situation, right? Where it's not a huge team, it's a smaller team where everybody sort of knows each other. But once again, there's competition, but it's friendly competition and it's fun. So I interviewed for that and I look for that. And I always tell people, look for what you want. Define it first. Make sure you understand what you know drives you and then go look for that. So as they're interviewing you, you interview them. Awesome. That's a great advice. And also, I think you mentioned, I mean, I mentioned in your bio that you are into mentorship and coaching. Do you have advice for women who are looking for a mentor or a coach? Yes. I don't care if you just started your first job yesterday or you've been in it 20 years. You need a mentor and a coach at every point in time in your career. A mentor is someone, and just from a definition standpoint to separate these two, a mentor is someone who you go to for advice, right? A coach is someone who can position you for roles. You need both, right? There are many times, you know, in my career, I've been here 28 years, it hasn't been necessarily a happy day every 28 years, nor was every role like the perfect fit for me. And the thing that got me through in some cases when it was difficult were those mentors and those coaches. And it's having that heart, someone you can go to to have a heart to heart conversation to say, you know, I may not be doing very well in this role. Here are the things that I think that I'm, you know, I don't know or I'm not doing well. And to get that advice, the coach, right, is someone who says, okay, you are, pushes you. You are ready for that next step. You should be thinking outside of your current role about what you do next, right? It's a, it's a, what I call a, um, it's a net network. That's the word, right? It is the net that catches you when you're, if you're falling, but it's also the net that lifts you up when you're ready to go to that next level. So make sure that you have those people both within your organization as well as outside of it, because sometimes people get tunnel vision in an organization around what their goals are and agenda. And it's great to have someone who's outside of it who can maybe give you an objective view of something that's happening outside. And so that's something that I've always done is as I've taken new roles, I've identified, are my current mentors and coaches the right ones and enough, or do I need to expand that or change it, right? It shouldn't be something that's just, you know, this is what it is for the rest of your career. It should be something that changes over time. Of course. Thank you so much. Now let's talk about the Black Founders Development Program. And you told me this is your passion. So I want to know, how did you find your passion and drive it to what it is today? Well, you know what? It goes back to the very first question you asked me in terms of my career journey. Once again, when, you, when you're someplace for 28 years, I've had, as at the time, six different careers. You know, I was trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, I'm, am I on that downswing towards, you know, retirement? You know, I'm not necessarily looking for future promotion, but I am looking to make an impact right? Whether it's internally or externally. I had the benefit of uh, having a, a wonderful coach in this case who invited me and said, hey, Kathy, I would I'd love you to come over to our Accenture Ventures team investments. It's technology, but I've never done investments. So it was, it was interesting. I was like, okay, this is different. Um, and it'll allow me to stretch myself. 
personally, at the same time, I have come from a family of entrepreneurs. My mother's an entrepreneur. My husband's an entrepreneur. My kids are aspiring entrepreneurs. And I saw the difficulties that they had, if you will, driving you know, their ideas, if you will, into the marketplace. The concept came to me as part of the, this new role, they asked me to start our inclusion and diversity agenda, right, for this team. It was a fairly new team, small, but, you know, as we grew, we wanted to make sure that, you know, inclusion and diversity was at the heart of everything that we did. And at the same time, we had been um, requested to do an analysis of just where are the VC dollars going, right? Where should Accenture pay attention to in terms of technology? That was the ultimate goal. But when we started looking at the numbers and saw how little VC dollars were flowing to the underrepresented community as a whole, not just Black founders, women, um, LGBTQ, um, Hispanic, um, Latin, Latinx, etc. It was amazing, right? And it was it was eye opening, um, uh, and it really said, "All right, you know, point in time, I've managed to find something that personally and professionally together can have an impact in a community, right? That that was the point in time." You know, some people find it much earlier in their lives and their careers. They just know um, what that thing is. Um, there's generally a catalyst, if you will, of some sort. You know, the catalyst for me was really that report, although, you know, the events with George Floyd, um, you know, in that summer of 2020 also accelerated things. But when you find that thing, go after it, right? Because it, it's what wakes me up every day and just says, I'm excited to go out and see what I can do today to help a new founder, drive a new initiative. Um, and once again, as I said, make an impact in the community. Thank you so much. This is really inspiring. And now I have another question, um, <laughs> changing the topic a little bit. So what are some of your hobbies? All right. So um, I have teenage sons and everybody, one of my favorite things to do is play tennis, right? And it's been since before I was married um, and kids and everything else. So I brought everybody into tennis. And it was actually one of the saving graces during COVID because we could go outside and play tennis. Um, you know, when we couldn't go into gyms and everything else. So that's brought us together more as a family. Love to travel. Obviously, that was curtailed quite a bit, but hopefully we'll, we'll open back up. I'm a reader. I love to learn new things. I do fiction, nonfiction, all kinds of books. I probably read three to four books a week. But I'll go back to the thing that's probably at the base of everything is I love technology. So new technologies as they come out, right? So as soon as the Oculus is in the metaverse is now, of course, that's my kids as well. But um, you know, come out, right? Those are the things that you want to get in. They're doing it for games, I'm doing it for games too. But on the flip side, I'm also looking at it from a business perspective to understand, okay, what, what does this add value to for our clients? What, is, what can this do, if you will, that, that I need to translate into from business to technology terms and vice versa? So all of those things, I think, together, but at the end of, end of the day, it's, it's um, definitely technology. Awesome. Thank you so much. So we have one last question. You shared some great advice today, uh, but to end up the interview, and this is for our members, what is your pro tip for women in technology? It goes back to the question we spoke about maybe a couple of minutes ago. It's the network, right? From day one, before you even take that first job, right? Your, your college professors, the people who are in your college classes with you, it's your network. These are the people who can let you know new job openings at their companies, new opportunities that are popping up, new things that you should be aware of within your company. Once again, having mentors, coaches, but expanding and creating your network um, such that you never feel like you're stuck, right? It's you're, you have information coming in from many different angles. You have people who can influence 
both your career today as well as in the future. You have people who can position you effectively. And, you know, someone calls it setting up your board of directors, right? Do it from day one, right? And make sure that you keep those relationships active and that you're speaking to them. Table stakes is doing great work, right? I mean, that's just the table stakes. Even if it's not something that, you know, you like doing or, um, you know, maybe it's, you know, a level or two below your capabilities, whatever. Do great work. That's table stakes, um, you know, in the, in, in the marketplace. But once you do that, people recognize it. People notice it. Um, and that's where your network really comes in is where you're having an active conversation and say, you know, hey, this is what I'm doing or this is what I'm interested in doing. It never failed for me when I told someone what I was interesting and interested in doing within a couple of weeks. It may have taken months for it to manifest, but within a couple of weeks, someone came back and said, there's something interesting um, that's happening over here, which you should know about, right? Literally weeks. So be patient, but your network is, is key. And it is what got me to where I am today. It's what saves me when I'm having a bad day. And it's what lifts me up, you know, when I'm ready to get to that next step. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great to have you today. Uh, I am so happy to hear your experience and all the great advice you gave to all of our members. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. And hopefully there's a nugget or two in there that helps someone in their journey. Sure. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate and comment.